Hey everyone, it's your girls Jasmine and Shantae from The Way with Jasmine Tay with a special edition episode for you all. An old college friend and fellow podcaster, Ian Knight, reached out and asked us to share a short interview with Judge Frank E. Cuthbertson surrounding race discrimination and systematic inequality. This message is for everyone, so please take a moment to listen and hopefully learn a little more about the fight and share ideas to help bring about change. Enjoy. Today is June 6, 2020, and today we're talking about race, the justice system, and how we can stem change. Today, I'm sitting here with Honorable Judge Frank Cuthbertson. Uh, Judge, thank you for joining us on the show today. Good morning. It's an honor to be here. All right. So for everyone out there, obviously, this is going to be a special episode for us. But Judge, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and let everyone know kind of who you are exactly and what it is that you've been doing in the last few years of your life. Right. Well, I just retired after 20 years as a Superior Court judge here in Pierce County, Washington. And um, it's interesting with all the things that are happening right now. Um, I'm a, I became a lawyer because I had dedicated my life to really serving the Black community and improving the lives of people of color. And um, I've done that my whole life. And um, it seems like that struggle is continuing and there's a lot more work to be done. Yeah, and I can't agree with you more. And that's something we're going to dive into a little bit later on in the show. Uh, to get started with, um, I understand that you were actually born in Queens, New York, back in 1953. And after that, you went ahead and attended Duke University and later on got your doctorate or your Juris Doctorate degree from Seattle University back in 93. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences in college? Yeah, um, it's interesting. Um, my family were what you call, they used to call cotton and tobacco Negroes from Eastern North Carolina. Um, my grandparents grew up in Wilmington and in Monroe, North Carolina. Um, and we used to visit North Carolina, my sister and I in the summer, my parents were a part of that generation of black people in the thirties and forties that migrated from the South to the North as part of the great migration. And they emphasized education and those issues. And of course, when I was young, we used to watch uh, on television as black people in the South were bit by dogs and met with hoses and police batons. And that was our daily diet on TV growing up. <clears throat> and so when I, um, I was in a program called a college bound program and I got a scholarship to Duke. And I think they were looking for folks from all across the country to diversify their student body, which was a student body of very rich white folks from the East Coast. And when I got to Duke, it was interesting. Duke had no basketball team, no people of color played basketball for Duke University. There were only 100 of black students and that included graduate students and undergraduate students. It was very different. Um, in fact, I'll tell you one story. When I got to Duke, Duke had made service for your freshman students in the dorm. So black women came in the dorms and put out your garbage and made up your bed. And when they came in my room, I told the woman, look, don't, you don't need to do that. My grandmother 
was a live-in maid in New York and was a maid at the time. I started at Duke in 1970. And, you know, I told her, I said, please, you know, I will. And it just was a sharp contrast um, to what I had been used to. Life in the South was just very different. And it was still Jim Crow South. Um, one other thing I'll tell you about Duke at the time is Duke Hospital is one of the most important teaching hospitals in the country, maybe beside Johns Hopkins. And if you were a black worker at Duke in 1970 and you had a heart attack on the main campus, you wouldn't go to Duke Hospital. They would transport you across town to what was known as Watts Hospital in Durham. North Carolina, um, and that was how deep the racism and discrimination was in the South and and at Duke when I got there. <laughs> and we're talking about, I mean, I don't have the exact date in front of me right now, but I mean, we're talking about, is it 72, 1970 to 1975 were the years that I was there. Yeah, 72 to 75. And you know, fast forward, and we're still talking about race issues today. And that's, oh, yeah. yes, and that's why I'm gl so glad to have someone like you on the show, because you've been able to actually see the continued fight throughout the decades and give not only a, a perspective of a black man, but a black man that has gone on to work in the judicial system. Yes. All right. So it's a pretty unique perspective. I don't know. I mean, it, I mean, we're just not going to find a lot of people like that in this world. I mean, I'm really lucky that you agreed to come on. So, you know, went ahead and went to Duke. Obviously, it's a sharp contrast, like you admitted. Um, and then we went over to Seattle University, where you got your uh, Juris Doctorate. And then I believe you actually went on to teach um, a few classes over at Seattle. Am I right? I did. I um, was um, what they call an adjunct professor. I taught health law. I taught law and medicine at Seattle University Law School. Um, okay. I was I went to law school late. I went to law school when I was 37. So I was got out at 40. And um, it was important to really try to establish my legal career right away. And um, I really enjoyed teaching. I had planned to go back to teaching. I want to help develop another cadre of revolutionary young lawyers. Because uh, I don't think the struggle is going to end right away. <clears throat> But uh, that's on hold for a while. Anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. Oh no, no. I mean these are. I mean these are things that you know our guests need to hear right now. But so, I mean your your biography is full of accomplishments and full of honors. I mean, there's no way you can get through it all. I'll list them down in the show notes. But just know we're talking to a well qualified man today, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so let's talk about your early days of law practice. I understand that you actually practice law at Gordon Thomas Honeywell. I'm going to butcher this next name and I apologize. Malanka Malanka Peterson and Dayhan, yeah. Yes. I was I was lucky um when I came out of law school um there was a program that was started in Seattle which is called a minority clerkship program and it was to introduce young minority lawyers to big firm practice. And you have to understand that even in the legal world, the sophisticated world of lawyers on Wall Street and elsewhere, there's always been discrimination. And so in a lot of firms um, back even in 93, um, 
a lot of firms did not have any or many African-American attorneys, um, the big law firms. And I got to work at a big international law firm, which was actually Davis Wright Tremaine. Um, and they have offices in New York and Shanghai and DC and uh, Seattle was their home office. And it was a good experience, but it was because of the minority clerkship program that I got that experience. And um, that was my first legal job. And then I went on to work as in-house counsel for an organization called Group Health Cooperative, now known as Kaiser. And um, then came to Gordon Thomas Honeywell, where I represented hospitals and doctors and uh, that's when I started teaching as an adjunct professor at Seattle University Law School. Right, because you special because uh, the classes you taught they were uh, was it medical law I believe and yes yes yeah healthcare law yeah yeah okay well that makes a lot of sense. Um, so you know you obviously you graduate you go you teach a few classes um, through a through a specialty program you're actually introduced to law uh, to law and bigger firms and time goes on and you're appointed to the superior court in february of 2001 and you're actually the first african-american to serve um as a as the pierce county superior court judge um, right yes. and, and superior court is the main trial judge main trial court in washington state in each county there's a superior court oddly in our county in pierce county where tacoma washington is which has a significant african-american significant Pacific Islander population, there were no people of color serving in on the Superior Court as judges. And um, you kind of have gone through my resume and my background. And uh, at one point I asked about it. I asked one of my colleagues, I said, why is it in King County and all over the country there are black judges, but not here, African-American judges. And somebody said, well, there's nobody who's really qualified. And um, and it became a challenge for me. And it was like, well, I went to Duke University, Seattle University Law School. I've worked at the biggest, most prestigious firms in the state. And I think I'm qualified. And, um, <clears throat> and uh, Governor Locke, who was an Asian American governor, um, appointed me to the bench in 2001. No, huge accomplishments. And we're going to talk about this in just a second. But a lot of the system, uh, systematic racism that uh, that we're going to dive into on the show, he's already touched on a lot of it. I mean, going to a university where the majority of the colored people that you're going to see on campus are maids, uh, going into the professional workplace where people of color are very slim to find. And often they're there because of specialty programs, which there's certain groups in this country feel that's not fair in itself. But I would also like to highlight that if it wasn't for specialty programs like this, big companies would not be incentivized to put people like us in certain positions so that we may have a chance to show the world that the color of your skin doesn't matter as long as you're qualified to do the job. Um, so that's, a, yeah. that's an important point. You hit it on the head, um, but yeah, go ahead. Yes. Um, so let's go ahead and talk about the civil rights movements. Um, one of the biggest things I think you're going to bring to the show today is that you've seen the movement through the decades. So when we're talking about the the protests, the riots, 
um, the general discomfort right now that the whole nation and actually I'm going to expand that the world is feeling right now. Um, it's nothing new. I mean, you've had the Jim Crow laws that you've experienced. I mean, you talk about growing up watching, uh, you know, our people being hosed down and attacked by dogs. This fight has been going on for decades. And so when I hear things from people that say racism isn't real or, you know, they may even say that I'm not racist. um, We have to highlight that just because you don't use certain language does not mean you're not racist. At a certain point, and I believe that you highlighted this in one of your articles from MLK, a time comes when silence is betrayal. So I want to actually rewind it and let's talk about the civil rights movement through the decades. So, okay. Um, you put out an article called race and equal justice, unfinished business back in 2015, where I'm just going to highlight a few functions, but folks, I'll have the link to the article in the show notes where you highlight the fourth, fifth and 14th amendments that prevent the police from acting as prosecutors, judge, jury, especially in regard to racial characteristics, nationality, gender, and disability. Why is that so important to highlight even now? Well, you know, Wes, as a retired judge, I believe that our justice system is probably one of the best in the world, at least potentially. The problem is, is that we have never actually as a nation and as a justice system lived up to what the Constitution required. And so when I see cases like George Floyd or I see cases here like Manuel Ellis, who is a young African-American man who um, lost his life, very similar to George Floyd, who couldn't breathe after four police officers apparently beat him um, and he was in mental health crisis. Um, When you see those kind of things, it's it's hard to say how good our justice system is or potentially is, but it really troubles me as as a judge that there's a role for the jury. The jury is what makes our system really good. And all of us over 18 can serve as jurors. And then there are judges who can try to be fair and impose the right sentence. Um, But it's not up to law enforcement officers on the street to decide, yeah, you did it, you're guilty, and now we're gonna decide that, you know, we're gonna punish you. And so they actually take over the role of the jury, of the citizens, of the community, of the judge. And that's what happened in George Floyd's case. That officer decided he was guilty, that the bill was counterfeit, that he had to be punished, and in fact, he had to die. And so he took over the role of the prosecutor, the jury, the judge, and the community. And when officers do that, it really is an affront to to any community, and particularly African-American community. And that's where I want to highlight the disproportionate impact of the justice system when it comes to people of color, blacks, browns. Um, There's an argument that everyone likes to point out when they say there are more white people assaulted by police officers than black people. Well, when you look at it proportionately, that's not the case. Uh, Proportionately, black men, brown men are systematically targeted. I have friends and family in law enforcement who have confirmed that they are actually taught 
in their training to profile people of color to identify if they are or aren't breaking the law. They have certain protocols for white people as well, but they really push people of color. And that's and that's another factor. Another thing, well, you know, I, yes. Well, let me interrupt you because, you know, there are two things there. You know, it's interesting to me a couple of years ago when Obama was president. I don't know if you recall this, but Henry Louis Gates, who's a noted professor at Harvard, who's on television every night on public broadcasting, he was stopped at his house by a white police officer in Boston. And um, you you may remember Obama invited both of them to the White House and had beer with them out in the Rose Garden. Uh, so you're right, Wes. It's like it doesn't matter um, if you're even well-educated Harvard professor. If you're Black, you are going to be a suspect. Um, and that is something we really have to, to turn around. And. And the reason why we have to turn this around is because it creates a lack of trust in our justice system. And that is not good for our democracy. And I really love the fact that you pointed that out because at the end of the day, we are all Americans. The fact that you, if you decide to support black lives matter or not, at the end of the day, we all are all, we are all working to make this country a better place. And when you don't, and when you have people who have a lack of trust in democracy, it's not positive and it's not promoting unity. Yeah, it doesn't work. Yeah. Right. So yeah, the whole premise is equal justice under law. And it's obvious that it's not applied equally. I would add one thing. Uh, the thing about white folks, it's poor people. Poor people get different policing than other folks. And yes. we just need to be aware of that. Um, in our community, law enforcement sits in low-income communities, and they run everybody's car plates, and they're looking for anybody who has a warrant. And it's kind of uh, that's the kind of policing that puts the community on edge and leads to disproportionality in terms of arrests. And that goes the other thing. Yes, go ahead. I'm sorry. And that goes back to the systematic race. That goes back to systematic racism on a socioeconomic level. So, yes. I mean, there are there are thousands of people who will agree that the amount of money you make dictates the way you are treated. And you can go back to the way that celebrities are put on trial, no matter the color of their skin, the treatment that they get for their crimes versus everyday Joe's like like me or your grandson. Right. No, you don't get Mike Flynn justice. I want Mike Flynn justice for black people where you. You can withdraw your guilty plea. Yeah. The attorney general comes in and, you know, pull Manafort justice. That's what everybody should have. Uh, I, I'm being facetious. I know. But it, you're right. I yes. mean, these people are treated very differently than everybody else. And that's wrong. I mean, you can even go back. I mean, it might be, oh, I don't even know what I want to say. I mean, you can even go back to the, the OJ trials and see the type of treatment he got versus, mm -hmm. you know, any other person of color mm -hmm. at that time. It was crazy. I mean, yeah. It's, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, money plays a factor, but you know, that's a, anyway, it goes back to the whole systematic thing. So people who go out there and say, you know, there's not a problem with the system, the amount of money you make, the color of your skin, your level of education after a certain point. I mean, it all plays a factor. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, I want to talk about post protest initiatives. 
I feel like right now we have the world's attention. I feel like more than ever, there are people getting involved in conversations on the local level, you know, asking, how can I help? What can we do to create systematic change or even change in everyday life? And the common thread that I'm hearing right now from leaders on television is, um, I don't have the answers. Well, I would really like to try to find some answers. And given your background, I was hoping that you can provide some perspective and maybe talk about some initiatives that we can, you know, push moving forward. Good. So um, I heard President Obama the other night and I started to look up Campaign Zero. It's one of the things that he has endorsed. Um, it's He has my brother's keeper initiative, but Campaign Zero, your uh, listeners can go to that website and look at it. And they have a section on solutions, which I think really is um, represents some important fundamental things to change um, how policing occurs in minority communities in particular. One is this issue about demilitarization. Um, I grew up in New York West and I remember the first time we went to a demonstration and the armored personnel, we met with armored personnel carriers and helicopters and uh, the police um, have even become more militarized since then. And so that's a big problem. Um, mm -hmm. There needs to be an end to what they call broken windows policing. And one of the issues here in Pierce County where I'm at is that the mental health system is so broken that we need to decriminalize mental illness. Um, the young man who was killed here, I mentioned earlier, Manny Ellis, Manuel Ellis, back in March, um, who we just got an autopsy report from the medical examiner saying it was homicide by the police. His problem was he was having, I believe, uh, a mental health issue and they ended up killing him. So we have to decriminalize mental illness. Um, We've got to stop using the police as an occupation army in low-income and minority communities. Um, we need to look at the budgets for police officers. I'm from New York. I couldn't believe that NYPD could afford to send five police officers to stop Eric Garner from selling cigarettes in Staten Island. Five officers. Um, so maybe we need to look at budgets and maybe we need to look at police union contracts. Um, and finally, Wes, I would just say that training is really important. Uh, we need people who really wanna serve our communities. I know a lot of people in my family, um, my son-in-law's NYPD is a sergeant there. There's tons of folks people of color who serve as police officers. And um, <clears throat> we need to make sure that people, that officers are trained to respect and serve the community. And if they're afraid of the community, then we should get somebody else and those folks shouldn't serve. So th those yes. are just some things that need to happen. Um, I think we need to all register to vote. I think we need to continue to be active. As soon as we go to sleep for a minute, it starts all over. I mean, this has gone on too long. If we go back to Rodney King, it was the same thing. Then there were riots, and then it went away, and then it continued. 
Right. And you know, it's important to remember that this has been happening for a long time. If you do some research, if your listeners do some research, if you go all the way back to the 1600s to 400 years ago, it started with the slave patrols who were designed to observe us and watch us and keep us on the plantation and particularly to keep us from rebelling against our masters. And during Jim Crow, that work got taken over by the Klan and the White Citizens Council, who wanted to keep us away from the polls and who were able to arrest us under what they call vagrancy laws once we were free from the plantation. And of course, it continued on into the 19th century in the 1890s and 1900s when lynching just became prevalent. Extrajudicial killing of Black people was okay. And that was lynching all over this country. That's why a lot of people like my parents moved from the South to the North because they were concerned about lynching. And then when they got to the North, um, very interesting history. Um, that's when we started to see the violence against minority people by the local police forces. So this has been going on a long time. I like the fact that in an essence, you wrapped up the the fight from the decade to decade to decade and how it's still going on and how it's transferred from being slaves to how it's now moved over to the local police force and how it's just been ingrained. And we it's just gone by and the majority of the population just hasn't noticed because for them, it's been business as usual. Exactly. Uh, one thing I want to point out, I, I like the fact that you brought up the mental health aspect. Um I believe that you actually had a big part in, in working with the pretrial services program and the mental health court back in 2015. Am I correct? Yes. And thanks for raising that. Um, because when I was a judge, we did try to do some things to make the system better. And there have been some improvements. One is, I think the nation understands now we have to get rid of this bail money bail system. Poor people can't afford bail. A lot of people are, everyone is presumed innocent. But we used to lock people up until they pled guilty. That was the that was one of the injustices that we need to fix. So we I worked with other people in Pierce County to start what we call pretrial services. So people can get out of jail if they're arrested without bail. The other one, which was really important, was mental health court. Because I believe, as I told you earlier, we have to decriminalize mental illness. And for so many people in our system, um, their supposedly unlawful conduct is just um, a result of their mental illness, and which is often something that can't be helped. And um, so we don't need to incarcerate people because they're having a mental health crisis. We need to train law enforcement to deal with it appropriately and have appropriate resources for those folks so they don't decompensate and end up in the justice system. So that was a big, those were big important reforms. And I think the point Wes, is that we can make this change, okay? We have to remember we did get through slavery. We did get through reconstruction. We did build institutions like Howard and Fisk and the historically black colleges. And we did elect an African-American president finally and we will stop police brutality in our community 
but it's going to be a long, hard fight when we just got to stick with it. And, and I love the fact that you brought in just so many different aspects and that you're actually bringing solutions to the table that you've actually implemented and that have been proven to work. And just a reminder, everyone, we're going to have links to all these material to all this material in the show notes. Um, so campaign zero, everything. Uh, don't worry about it. I'll make it easy for you. Um, so, I, hey, thank you for today. I also want to talk about local efforts promote change. I know you mentioned getting out, registering to vote. I know that's a huge I know that's a huge one. And a lot of people don't do it. And we really need to keep pushing that, especially right now with it being a campaign year. Um, I'm going to I'm not going to spew my political beliefs right now but if you don't like the way something's being done and you feel like there's someone that can do it better go out and vote not just for the president but go out and vote in your local elections because change starts on the local level so um sorry judge uh i'm gonna get off my my soapbox but that's right (laughs) uh Local efforts to promote change. Is there anything else that you really think that our listeners should get out there and do if they want to get out and contribute? Well, you know, I, you know, you, um, one thing is, I think you hit it on the head and the wisdom and the resourcefulness I've seen from uh, the people who are out protesting now who are all a lot younger than me. But yes, you hit it on the head. I think that what we have to do next is we have to build community. Um, back in the day, we used to call it community empowerment. And uh, one of the things that I did as an organizer for the Tennessee Hunger Coalition is, you know, we made sure that low-income people and everybody in the neighborhood was educated on what was going on, was involved in local community organizations and block clubs and co-ops and whatever. So we have to build up our community in the broadest sense um at the same time as we're protesting all the stuff that's wrong um because i think when we do that we can be very powerful and um can hold people accountable i 100 so your point agree. is a real good one okay um let's talk about i want to uh, before i let you go i want to talk about underutilized resources um, that a lot of people may not know about um are there any resources out there that people who want to get out and fight injustice or people who may find themselves involved in a situation that's less than pleasant? Are there resources out there that they can reach out to that aren't widely known? Well, you know, that's another interesting question. Um, I think there are, I hope that um, what I'd like to see happen is that the young people who are leading the struggle now, who have the energy, who are on social media, who are very sophisticated uh, in using technology to move our struggle forward. Um, I hope that those folks and the older folks like me, and that's why I think this podcast is so important, can talk and share ideas about things that we've learned through the struggle historically and the mistakes that we may have made in the 60s and 70s and 80s um, so you all can avoid those. Um, For example, um, police provocateurs or other provocateurs or people who want to disrupt what we're trying to do. We need to know how to identify those folks, how to deal with that. Um, when I was an organizer in the South, I would go to these towns and I, you know, I had graduated from Duke and I'm 
going to organize these low-income minority people in these little communities. And often, I, you know, these little old ladies who are in their 80s would tell me, look, son, sit down and let me tell you what's going on. And, and I learned to listen to the masses, to listen and learn from other people, from the grassroots people. And I think that's helped me. Um, so to be a good organizer and to be a good leader, you have to be a good student and a good listener and be willing to um, hear other voices. And so I think if we do that, uh, it'll help us a lot. And uh, we can use the wisdom of the past, the, the energy of the new to uh, really be successful in this struggle. I, I agree with you. And I want to add in my little two cents to everyone out there listening. The world is listening to us right now. This is one of the best times for our people to come together and really promote the things that we need and that we want to see change so that our kids can have a better future so that it is more equal. Democracy is one of the best things about this country. And when there's a lack of trust in it, it creates a rift. We need to go ahead and solve that rift. And it's going to take people from all backgrounds to do it. Judge, any last thoughts before I let you go? No, you know, I appreciate what you're doing, trying to communicate with folks. Um, and um, I think this has been a great conversation. And um, please keep up the good work that you're doing and that uh, people in the community are doing. Thank you. Thank you. And everyone, uh, Judge Cuthbertson, he has agreed to take questions. So if you have any questions, his email will be down in the show notes. Feel free to go ahead and type them up and send them on in and he'll get back to you when he has a chance. Um, from sunny Phoenix all across the world right now, I want to tell everybody stay strong and thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. Now that you have some ideas of ways that you can make policy reform, it's now time to get out there and put these ideas to action. Share this podcast with your friends and email any ideas for policy reform to your local representatives. You can find Ian on IG at Coach I Knight. That's K-N-I-G-H-T. And you can listen to his podcast, Believe Arizona Fit, on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for tuning in. Stay Black. Peace.